0: Hello, this is Jack Buckley, I'm an anesthesiologist here at UCLA Medical Center. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Randall Chestnut on behalf of the Education Committee for NAC. Uh, Dr. Chestnut is an Integra-endowed professor of neurotrauma at the University of Washington in the Department of Neurologic Surgery and Orthopedics and Sport Medicine. In addition, he is the Chief of Cranial and Spine Trauma at Harborview Medical Center. He currently has funding from the NIH for outcome studies on brain injury and trauma care systems in Latin America. His research interests include brain injury and trauma care systems in the developing countries and having targeted therapy for the management of traumatic brain injury. Today, we are going to discuss the use of ICP monitors in the management of uh, traumatic brain injury patients. So, Dr. Chestnut, if you could uh, provide with us a brief historical perspective on the utility of ICP monitoring in brain injured patients uh, that has led... To this becoming the standard of care uh, recommended by guidelines from most neurosurgical and neurocritical care societies?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. The Before ICP monitoring in, in early the 50s and the 60s, there were two flavors of brain injury. There was surgical, which meant you could take a clot out, and then there was the rest, which didn't require much treatment because we didn't have much treatment for them. And indeed, after surgery, even the surgical ones became sort of almost a natural history study with some basic support. As soon as ICP monitoring came along it caused a fundamental paradigm shift in traumatic brain injury now suddenly all traumatic brain injury was treatable and it shifted traumatic brain injury from primarily anatomic to primarily physiologic disease and it was a, a huge revolution in, in the way we thought of traumatic brain injury and you know to be honest most people thought that ICP was the result for the improved morbidity and mortality and and all of those changes and Indeed, probably, it should be better thought of as the catalyst and and not actually the cause of the improvements. But it was the big, exciting thing. It had changed brain injury, and everybody really on the academic research side adopted it. And the next generation, of which uh, I was a representative, really kind of grew up believing in it. And although it wasn't exceptionally well evidence-based, it became incorporated into academic and high-level brain injury, sort of
0: de facto. Well, your group conducted the BEST TRIP trial a few years ago to examine the effectiveness of ICP monitoring, uh, guiding therapy in traumatic brain injury patients. Can you tell us what uh, led to this undertaking of this study?
1: Well, three decades ago, Jam Gajar published a survey of United States practice in brain injury and found it was more likely that you would receive steroids, which are now completely not used in brain injury, than ICP monitoring. And so a couple of us were quite concerned about that. We thought, gosh, that's got to be because people don't realize the evidence profoundly supports brain injury. So we went on to write the traumatic brain injury guidelines that are now in their fourth edition now coming up. And and, uh, in doing so, we found that indeed, surprisingly, there wasn't this strong evidence base. And so the usual finish to any paper or any set of guidelines, of course, is that more research is needed and a randomized trial is called for. None of us felt that a randomized trial in ICP monitoring would ever be done, done, period, coming from high-income countries. We had it, we were using it, and we didn't think we would be comfortable, even given the lack of strong evidence, in forming a treatment group that didn't include monitoring. So it was really felt it would never be done. A number of years later, in setting up an observational trial in Latin America, the investigators there said, why don't we do a randomized trial of ICP monitoring? And it took a while for us to realize that although the evidence is global, it, it pertains to everyone, the sort of visceral part of equipoise was much different there. There they didn't have ICP monitoring, and they wanted to see what would happen if they added it, which is actually, when you think of it, different than withholding a monitor that you grew up with. Scientifically, it's the same, but the the visceral side of it is different. And after we thought about it for a while, we thought, well, let's do this trial. This is the trial we've all talked about. Let's see if treating traumatic brain injury with monitoring is better than treating traumatic brain injury without monitoring, with a definite protocol, but without monitoring. And, And that's really kind of the circuitous route that caused us to put together this randomized trial.
0: What were the questions that you wanted to answer with this study?
1: Well, uh, because ICP was associated with this tumultuous change in our our uh, paradigmatic approach to brain injury, and because when you look at the literature over time, in a univariate fashion, ICP monitoring, the initiation of ICP monitoring was associated with a, a fairly significant change in morbidity and mortality. You know, w- we all wanted to see if ICP as an individual factor, uh, uh, as an ind- was an independent predictor of improved outcome, and that takes a randomized trial. So the, the, the main focus was, and naively, I guess, to just demonstrate that adding ICP monitoring improves outcome. The secondary but pre-specified questions were uh, the effects really on efficiency of care, and that's uh, number of traumatic brain injury-directed treatments and the number of days in ICU for the purpose of treating traumatic brain injury, comparing the group that using the Brain Trauma Foundation algorithm, which is monitored, and the group that was using an ad hoc developed protocol that did not involve monitoring. So really the main focus was to show that adding ICP monitoring to the management of the population of severe traumatic brain injury improved their outcome.
0: Now can you tell us briefly about the results of the BEST trip study?
1: Well the results were that, uh, you know, in 25 words or less, the two groups were the same. In terms of our pre-specified outcome measures and all of our post-hoc outcome measures, there was no significant difference between the two groups. The group treated with ICP monitoring appeared to be more efficiently managed in that there were fewer brain-specific treatments delivered, and there were fewer brain-specific ICU days in the ICP-monitored group than in the non-monitored group, which really makes sense given that you had an empiric quantitative value to focus on, and you didn't over-treat due to sort of medical paranoia. But, but the bottom line, the real catching thing, was that there was no difference in outcome between these two groups. But what has been the
0: impact of the publication of this study?
1: Well, the, you know, unfortunately, as often, um, the less carefully you read the paper, the more trouble it causes. The paper itself was, was pretty clear, in its explanation, but the the general huge furor over the paper was that it was interpreted as not supporting the need for ICP monitoring, and and that resulted in, you know, personal attacks in the literature against our group. Brazil National Insurance almost stopped funding ICP monitoring. You know, presidents of large societies stood up and said, we don't need to monitor anymore, And, and that is not what the paper said. It caused a huge furor over that, and indeed, Two years ago, we had a consensus conference here in Seattle where 24 well-known opinion leaders from around the world came together to write a paper that was subsequently published in Journal of Neurotrauma, which was a consensus-based interpretation of the BEST-TRIP trial. And and consistent with what the BEST-TRIP trial actually said, it pointed out that what we studied was not the utility of ICP monitoring in patients that had established intracranial hypertension. It was that... The two protocols did not result in a different outcome. And if you think about it, that ca- should cause us to, to really seriously question whether or not one protocol is suitable for all of types of traumatic brain injury, whether one monitor gives us enough physiologic information to direct all of our treatment, and whether one sort of magic threshold, 20 millimeters of mercury, is applicable across the board. And when you put it like that and you compare traumatic brain injury to diseases, you know, such as cardiac disease or pulmonary disease or, or even cancer, where, you know, determining the physiology of the current problem and treating it specifically is really the goal, then we've just grossly oversimplified traumatic brain injury. And I think that's the crux of this paper is, is it points out that we have just way oversimplified it and that we need to assess our approach to traumatic brain injury, and our use of ICP monitoring in the
0: future of managing
1: the injured brain.
0: So what is the current status of ICP monitoring in traumatic brain injury patients?
1: Well, in contrast to the misguided but widely disseminated first order interpretation of what our paper meant, it is not that ICP monitoring is not needed. I, I don't know why you'd throw the tachometer out of your car because you didn't, li- didn't know what to do with the number. It, it's, it's really more, much more about what to do with an ICP number. You want to know the number. You want to know if the patient has an ICP of 40 versus an ICP of 8. I don't know if it's necessary to know if they have 22 versus 19, but you do want to know the ICP. The, the issue is that ICP is an epiphenomenon. There are many ways of getting to an elevated ICP. When the ICP goes up, you now have something that's telling you the brain is sick, but the ICP is not the disease. It's a reflection of the disease. So now you have to say, what's the disease? How should I treat it? And that requires a multimodality monitoring approach, like in any other disease. We don't just put in a uh, peripheral saturation monitor. When we see elevated ICP, we may then ask, okay, is this about pressure? In other words, is the patient likely to herniate? And you can, do, you can herniate at 16 versus, uh, as well as at 60. And you can also sometimes go to 60 and not herniate. So you can ask the uh, the herniation side of ICP, is the pressure itself and the pressure gradient dangerous? And then you can ask, what's the ICP influence on the meeting of the metabolic demands via delivery of blood flow? And two somewhat separable questions, yet all associated under ICP, at least initially. And so that requires more monitoring. And you can monitor the status of the, the brain clinically, and that's still crucial, even though we tend to put people to sleep and replace the clinical exam with thousands of dollars of monitoring, um, we still need that exam because a patient with an ICP of 25 or 26 who wakes up and follows commands briskly probably doesn't need more radical treatment for his ICP that may be a permissible degree of intracranial hypertension simply reflecting the fact that he bumped his head. So we need to rethink the numbers we get from ICP. We need the numbers, but we need not to knee-jerk respond to, to some ill-defined magic number. And then we also need to figure out, if as best we can, what the underlying physiology is so that we can target our treatment. It doesn't do I mean, ICP can go up because of fever. If, if you treat an elevated ICP with mannitol, you, you didn't do the patient any favors because you can't lower temperature with mannitol. So it's really much more about targeted therapy. And it's not that we don't have the tools to do it, and it's not that we don't have the concepts. It's just that we weren't doing it. We, were, we had these ridiculous linear algorithms and single numbers for all flavors of brain injury all the way through their treatment course. And so it's, that's the revolution, I think, that is coming now is the, the rethinking of the whole approach to brain injury. And ICP monitoring is and will remain an integral part of that.
0: Well, what do you think the role of ICP monitoring in neurologic conditions other than traumatic brain injury should be?
1: Well, I think it, I think it needs to be defined in, in, as it was. I mean, if you think of this is this is now a historical entity, thank God. Um, Rise syndrome. I the control of ICP was directly proportional, or, or the survival was directly proportional to the control of ICP. Uh, on the other hand, in general, anoxic injury uh, ICP is simply an indicator of disease severity, and uh, manipulating the ICP does not appear to influence outcome. I think it really needs to be determined. Uh, in stroke, we know that the precipitation of a decompressive craniectomy is better done on the vascular, the size of the stroke, the distribution, you know, whether it's one or more than one. Uh, uh, vascular territory, et cetera, and ICP doesn't appear to add to that. So, you know, I think it's useful. I see no problem in monitoring ICP. With a simple parenchymal device, you can put it in in five minutes. It's remarkably uncomplicated, except in patients with regulation dif- disorders like livers, and it gives you useful information. But I don't think we can just knee-jerk adopt what we probably have somewhat mistakenly used in brain injury to other disorders. So, you know, I, I, I don't have trouble monitoring, but I think we need to be very careful because, like with any monitor, just putting a monitor in and treating the number is expensive voyeurism. You have to be asking a question, and you have to be pretty sure that approaching that question will benefit the patient. So I don't think we can generalize from traumatic brain injury to other disorders. That being said, I don't think there's a problem with monitoring but we need to be careful with how we interpret the numbers.
0: What are future directions in this field, and how can a neuroanesthesiologist contribute to these advances?
1: Well, I think you know we're coming full circle with this. Is the revolution was taking traumatic brain injury from a an anatomic disease to a physiologic, disease, and neurocritical care is physiology, and being at the bedside, whether it's in theater or, or in ICU, is manipulating physiology we are still on the learning curve. To some extent, the treatment of each patient uh, accompanied by careful observation and and to some extent trial and error is also traumatic brain injury lab and we can manipulate the blood pressure and see what the effect on the ICP is. That way we can determine the auto-regulation and knowing the auto-regulation, we can then go on to determine proper CPP values and and, uh, delivery parameters. And so you know, I think we really need the physiologic background of caregivers. And that's where I think the, the major role of, of neuroanesthesiologists who are basically trained in all of the physiology. And I think because an anesthetist is by definition someone who manipulates physiology, sees what happens, and then changes based on that, more than some people trained in other disciplines who may be a little less quick on the, the, making that loop of, well let's try this and see what that does to the physiology and then manipulate it from there and i think that's where we are in brain injury because no one can walk into the room and say i know how to treat this at least i can i i don't i think we're not there so it's really let's try this let's see if it's efficacious if it changes the underlying physiology if it changes the associated physiology and either go with it if it works or change it if it doesn't and and that's that's you know that's the the philosophy behind manipulating physiology. So I think the partnership in the future has to be surgical and intensive medicine, mano a mano. It cannot be the surgeon running it or just intensivist running it. And, and obviously, I, I see neuroanesthesiology as being central to that.
0: Well, Dr. Chestnut, I very much appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today, and I feel like this is a topic that will be of great interest to our members. So thank you.
1: Sure. Thank you very much for the opportunity.